Hello, um, I'm Kim Tagesson, one of the elders here at uh, Christ Community Church. And uh, today's scripture reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 8 through 17. In your pew Bibles, that will be um, page 954. <clears throat> so if you uh, would please stand for the reading of God's word. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You may be seated. If you're new here this morning, we'd always like to have a few moments in between the reading of the Scripture and the preaching of the Scripture, just to make sure we all understand there's a pretty big difference between those two things. Uh, what we read was infallible, uh, but what might I, might I say, as hard as I've worked, is not going to be compared to the Bible. So we'd just like to physically have some separation in that to help us remind us of that. Uh, when I was in the third grade, I moved uh, to a dusty town in Oklahoma and lived there for four years, and nothing grew in this dusty town other than tumbleweeds because there was no dirt. It was just hard-packed clay everywhere, and uh, at the end of our street, there was an a piece of undeveloped land which that uh, contained a few sloping clay hills. Now, back in the third grade, these, this pretty much looked like the Grand Canyon to this group of boys in the neighborhood, but they probably weren't too high. Uh, but every weekend, we would go down to this place, and we called it the Jumps. So Scott and David and Tommy and Leon and all these guys that were around us, we'd always go to the Jumps on the weekend. The reason we called it the Jumps is because you'd go down these uh, hills, these clay-packed tracks, and uh, you get some speed. You remember you have the bicycle handles with the little cellophane, you know, flyers coming out the back of the handles. And we would go over a homemade jump, sometimes jumping a Coke bottle, sometimes a tumbleweed on some occasions each other. 
And so we would get, gain this speed and go over the jumps, and it was really a great place for a kid to grow up because there were all kinds of things to do there. Uh, but the, the biggest danger in the jumps came after a hard rainstorm. And the reason that was is because the, the rain would, would run down these hard-packed paths, soften the clay, and then the rain eventually would find just a little groove and make it into a, a bigger, deeper groove. And then the sun would come out and bake these grooves into like concrete trenches. And it wasn't a big problem unless you were going downhill and your front tire got into a concrete trench. And so you never made it to the jump at that point. Because of your forward momentum, your bicycle tire would get stuck in this concrete clay trench and you go flying off the handlebar. And honestly, the boys like that a lot better than the jump itself. Just seeing anybody wipe out was awesome. And so we would, we would do this and we would know, hey, on these days, we can't, gotta watch out because these concrete trenches that are new after the rainstorm have formed, these grooves that we get our lives stuck in. And I would like to say that, that our lives are a lot like this front tire. That our lives are attracted to the grooves or the trenches of our culture. Our culture rains down on us constantly and it forms grooves that, that force us to follow in a way or to fall into a certain pattern. The, the, the culture shapes our, our habits. Our, it shapes our longings. It shapes our desires. And the longer you live in the grooves of the culture, guess what? The harder it is to pull out of that groove. It, you, you, we're swimming in a certain cultural uh, context, and, and it's laid down cultural grooves, hungers, habits that you just have to have. Just think about it. I've got a wonderful iPhone 7, but what do I want today? Oh, I want the iPhone 10. Why? Not because my phone is dysfunctional. Because it's the cool thing to have, and it's just the way the culture molds you into that way. And the longer you're in the trench, the more you don't even realize you're in the trench. And also, the longer you're in it, then the harder it is for you to move in a, in a totally different direction. And this cultural entrenchment, it actually turns out to be a significant problem for the church at Corinth. The, the church at Corinth, the city of Corinth, if you remember, was a, a key commercial city. It sat at a, at a particular point, a port city, that goods coming from Europe and then flowing to Asia or Asia back to Europe, it was sort of the hub. It's where all the goods came through. And the, the, it was also the hub for business, academics, athletics, entertainment, and pleasure. So if you lived in Corinth, what constantly rained down on that culture, the grooves that got formed were business, academics, athletics, entertainment, and pleasure. So everyone in Corinth understood how to define success. You had some measure or some combination of wealth, wisdom, health, power, or celebrity. Does that sound familiar? If you're going to be seen as successful in the culture of Corinth, you're going to have some kind of combination of wealth, wisdom, health, 
power, or celebrity. Now, of course, that's the cultural groove, and that's just the part of the city. But the big problem was that when Paul planted this church, those grooves made, it, made their way inside the church. And so Christianity got hijacked by the culture in Corinth. Because now, when the people of Corinth met Jesus, they were entrenched in, in certain values. And what, guess what? When you meet Jesus, those don't magically disappear. I don't know if you've noticed that. All of your old hungers when you meet Jesus, they don't magically go away. You still have a lot of those same worldly desires, the culture still weighing in on you. And so these began to leak inside the church. And you, you see in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, very interestingly, when I came to you, brothers, remember, I, I, when I came, I didn't come pro- proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom. Why? It's not because Paul couldn't speak with lofty speech or wisdom, but that fed the cultural narrative. The people wanted somebody who was a powerful speaker that that seemed like a celebrity. They were hungry for that. And Paul knew if he came out as this powerful celebrity speaker, people would be impressed with him and not impressed with Jesus. So a man who purposefully could have sounded lofty and wise decided to just know Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if someone came forward, they were really came, came forward for Christ and not the, the, the celebrity preacher. Does that make sense? Paul understood that's what was happening in the culture. But the problem is Paul stays there for about a year and a half. And then when he leaves the the congregation slips back into their old cultural trenches. They just didn't have enough time outside of it that when Paul leaves, they, they slip back in. And unfortunately, there were enough misguided teachers who took Paul's place and fed those hungers. They understood what to say. They understood how to say it to gain an audience, to get some momentum to get the people on the outside interested in what was happening in, the Christian, in, in Christianity. And so the Christianity of take up your cross and follow me got twisted into something that was pleasant to follow. It doesn't take a master's degree to see the effect. Look at verse 8. Already, already you have all that you want. And then look, is it, look, look at verse 8 and verse 10. What is it that you want? Just look. Riches, they become kings who reign and rule. They have control over their lives. Wisdom, strength, honor, or celebrity. See, they've said, Here's the, here are the things that we want. We would like to be wealthy. We would like to have all the control in our lives. We'd like to be wise, strong, and we'd like to be celebrities. And somebody came to the pulpit and said, in Christ, you can have all those things. And they ate it up. Why? Because that was what their culture was promising. And here some preacher came along following Paul saying, you can have all that. And I want you to feel the magnitude of that problem in Corinth. When the culture begins to dominate inside the church, the church has a really big problem. Whatever the cultural values they may be. 
And the reason I want to make that problem clear is because the problem that existed in Corinth is not unique. It's a problem that exists in the church today. We have a similar problem. We have very similar hungers, do we not? Wealth, control, wisdom, health, celebrity. Those are all mere hungers that we have. And unfortunately, we have plenty of teachers who will come in and will promote those things in the name of Christ. So we know it as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or the name it and claim it or the word of faith movement. A lot of what you see on television, unfortunately. And the Apostle Paul wants to come in and warn his congregation, don't get stuck in this trench. This isn't true. They're taking a truth and twisting it to feed your already cultural appetite, your hunger. So don't do that. And so I want to be the person who warns myself and you as well not to fall into that. Now, this, let me just try to explain to you how I see it most of the time. You may see it a bit differently, but one of the common immature mistakes that these teachers make or they purposefully twist. I can't tell what a motive is, but they're either immature in their faith and so they make a mistake or they are purposefully twisting it, is they make all of God's promises, all the promises to you that are current and future, and they make them already. Does that make sense? They say you've got all these great promises of God, and they're going to import them all into your life today. You can have all of those right now. That's one way they do it. Or another way, maybe to say, it, is they take the not yet of the promises of God, and they move it into the already. And you see what Paul's saying, verse 8. He's coming to them and saying, already, my goodness, you've just gotten into the door, and already you're taking all this on, like you've gotten all this stuff Already. And Paul knows that one day the people of God are going to rule and reign and hold positions of honor. So it's true that one day those promises are going to come true. Look with me. Just turn over to chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will one day judge the world? Wow. And if we... if and if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to, by, to judge trivial cases? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Okay, so whatever that means, let's not try to figure that out right now. Let's just say there is a day. Sorry, you're going to have to go home and do a little study on your own. Plus, that's not the text today. This is chapter 4. Whatever that means, Paul's saying there is going to be this day that you're going to be judges. You're going to be in a place of wisdom, of honor, uh, of, of ruling, and even over angels in some way. What, again, whatever that means, that's definitely going to happen. It's just not going to happen today. But what the teachers in Corinth were saying, and many of our teachers, is they're importing the future promises into today. And you should be able to have all of these things today. Romans eight seventeen. If we are children, then we are heirs. And, and just amazing. Heirs of God. And co-heirs with Christ. I mean, that just is 
mind-bending how many great promises are in that. When, if we share in his sufferings, so that we may also share in his glory. Do you see what's in between the now and the not yet? It's sufferings are in between. So many great mind-bending promises of the Bible for those who trust in Jesus. But so many of those promises are going to be realized not at our spiritual uh, resurrection when we meet Christ, but our bodily resurrection when we see him face to face. They don't come at our spiritual conversion in this lifetime. They come at our bodily resurrection. So the problem in Corinth is they've moved the not ready into the all yet all, all, to the already. And here's how it works in our day. When when Jesus died on the cross, this is what someone said. He not only bore our sin, but he also our sickness and suffering. And then they quote First Peter two: "By his wounds you have been healed." You've probably heard this before. So a couple of quotes. Jesus bore your sickness and carried away your disease at the same time. So you shouldn't have disease in your body. In the same manner that he bore your sins. Or when Jesus stood bearing the lashes from the Roman soldiers, all of our physical pain and sickness were heaped upon him as if one lash for cancer, one lash for heart disease, and so on. Now, is that true? Well, I mean, yes and no. Does that make sense? Yes, he took all this suffering on us for our benefit, both physically and spiritually. But all those promises are not going to be realized right now. They're not going to be realized right now. And the problem with this is they say you can have it all right now if you just access it by faith. Of course, we will all one day be completely healed by Jesus' sacrifice, physical, mental, emotional, relational. But it comes on the last day. A lot of it comes on the last day, not today. Let me give you just an example because I just watched some of this on television this week in preparation. And you can, any, any day, you can find this any day. So, very charismatic preacher preaching from Genesis chapter 32. And I'm sitting there, and I'm at the end of, the end of my day, I'm tired. I've had a hard day, and I'm just listening to this guy. And he's a good speaker. And he's talking about, you remember the, when Jacob was wrestling with God? Jacob the deceiver. He's coming back into Israel. And basically, he's gotten everything he's gotten by deception. And Christ, or God, is trying to change him. So he has this sort of all-out, you know, 15-round wrestling match with an angel or God in some way over, over this nighttime period. And remember, Jacob won't let him go. He's not going to let him go. And he, the angel's afraid, for whatever reason, that the sun's going to come up. And so he, he says, let me go. And Jacob says, no, I, I, need, I need a blessing from you. And he says, okay, I'm going to change your name. Your name's not going to be Jacob the deceiver. It's going to be Israel, the one who wrestles with God. 
And you're, I'm going to give you all these promises that came to Abraham. They're not now going to come to you, Jacob or Israel. You're going to be the one who fathers a whole nation, right? So he gets all these blessings. And so this guy's saying, some of you right now, you need to be wrestling with God. You need to be let go of your old deceptive lifestyle. And God's going to give you a new name. And if you would just hold on, your day is just about ready to break. And you too can have the blessings of God. And I was sitting there going, I would like that. I mean, I find myself going, yes, there's something attractive about that. I'm interested in those blessings. And then he just went on about all the blessings that you can have because Jacob got all these blessings. And, of course, part of that is true. That's what makes this very difficult to, to decipher. But he didn't read Jacob, the rest of Jacob's life. The rest of Jacob's physical life was he had a totally dysfunctional family the rest of his life. He walked with the limp the rest of his life for having wrestled with God. He nearly starved and had to move his whole family down to Egypt for the rest of his life. And as an old man at 130 years old, he actually meets Pharaoh. And uh, he says, the Pharaoh asks him, well, how old are you? And in Genesis 47, 9, Jacob says to Pharaoh, my year, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Now, here's his own autobiography. That Maybe that's redundant. This is his own biography, right? My years have been few and miserable. This is Jacob describing Jacob. And I'm leaning in saying, this isn't the blessing I was hoping for. This doesn't sound like daybreak, right? Why? Because it, Jacob knew all of his promises were still out into the future. And he understood he was on a pilgrimage. He was not going to get all of his promises right here and right now. It was 400 years before Jacob's family made it into the promised land. But do you see what the preacher was doing? He was taking a reality that's true. You should wrestle with God and you should say, God, I've got this old life I've got to let go of. I'd like for you to come in and give me a new identity and give me a new destiny. Yes, I would like that. But I'm not going to get all of God's promises today after my wrestling match. Does that make sense? And so we've really got to have that understood because this is so much of our Christian culture and what the, those teachers have done, either by design or by mistake, they've imported all of your worldly hungers into the church and said, Jesus is going to serve you up your wealth and your health and your success and blessings. And who wouldn't want that? I'm raising my hand for that. But that's not the way the gospel works. Unless you twist it to mean something else, trying to get an audience, trying to get people to come in and listen to you, and then you obscure the cross. When Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow after me, take up your cross. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. You want to be great, you've got to be the servant of everybody. So we have to be very careful because it distorts the truth. And just notice how Paul, he does a very unusual way of speaking here, how he distorts it, how he, he 
takes them on in chapter, in, in chapter 4, 9 through 13. He does it with abiding sarcasm. You, you'll hear it. Corinthians, you, have already, you already have all you want? Wow. I guess God has a different plan for the apostles. You've got to hear the, the sarcasm in this. I mean, you guys, you got it all. This is awesome. He must have a different kind of plan for the apostles. You know, the apostles, the people who actually saw Jesus and were commissioned by him. I mean, they have a different plan, I guess. They don't get to reign. Instead, they're like men, men sentenced to death. They're, they're not first. They're last of all. They're not in any kind of wise position. They look like a foolish spectacle to the world and the angels. They're weak, hungry, poor, distressed, brutally treated, reviled, persecuted, slandered, and treated like the scum of the earth. Well, that's the apostles' life, but I guess you guys got it all. You hear that? Must have been hard to receive if you're a Corinthian. But you see, Paul's trying to, Paul's trying to plant something in their minds to say, you, you, you're... You're stuck in this cultural trench. You've imported it into the church, and you've really got to know something different here. So he's really trying to help them out in what he's trying to say. And he's angry that these people have come in and say to these people, you can have it all. So Paul's frustrated because it distorts the truth. The second reason this is important, and this is really just on a personal note, is that that false message that you can have it all right now, it doesn't just distort the truth. It's cruel. It is a cruel message. Because it takes people who are in pain, people who are in physical pain or financial pain or emotional pain, and it leads them to believe if they have faith, they can have all those promises right now. And, of course, it doesn't happen that way. And people leave in their most vulnerable moments, walking away thinking, I guess I just don't have faith. My mother died when she was 52 from cancer. And prior to her death, she went to one of these meetings, hoping for healing. And it didn't come. And so this godly woman in her weakest moment left this world questioning her faith. And that is cruel. So we have to be very careful about what's being said and really judge it against the whole content of God's word, not just pull out one thread that feeds our appetite and use it as something to live our whole lives by. Can God heal people today? Well, sure, he can. Praise him when he does. But it's important to remember that most of these promises are not going to happen today, just like for Jacob. Romans 8 I consider that our present sufferings are what? Are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. He doesn't say, I consider that our present sufferings are because we don't have much faith. That's not what he says. 
He says there's a future glory. And so when you're going through your current difficult circumstances, you need to be looking towards that glory. And that's going to motivate you and energize you and give you hope to get to the end. So we have to be careful. Now, look, that's a whole sermon, but that was really just one point. And so I want to make a transition and just say two things here quickly. Paul is a spiritual father. So like every good father, he sees they're stuck in this trench. And he says, it's my role to help these people get out of the trench, just like any father would for a son or a daughter. You've got to move out of this trench. You've got to have a different way of moving. And so, first of all, we just notice that we can be thankful. Two, two ways Paul gets these people out of the trench, two tactics, you might say. Number one, Paul actually says something, and then he sends someone. Paul says something, and then he sends someone. Paul says something, guys, you're on the wrong track. And in this case, he says it with some biting sarcasm, trying to get their attention. And we should be thankful when somebody comes and says, I think you're on the wrong track. You should just say, God, thank you. This is hard because I'd rather not somebody point something out, but I'm glad. I don't want to be stuck in this trench, and I'm glad someone's trying to point it out. And notice what it, the two words he used. I'm not doing it for shame. See that? I'm not trying to make you ashamed, but I'm trying to admonish. So this is a very key tactic, very helpful, especially if you're a parent or a ministry leader. Ashamed means to turn in on, on yourself. So if you're shaming someone, you're asking them to turn into themselves and say, I'm a loser. Right? You should be ashamed. You should look at yourself and say, I'm a big loser. Paul's not trying to say that. And he's saying it so they understand. I'm not trying to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to turn you into yourself. Instead, I'm trying to admonish. And the Greek there means I'm trying to put in your mind. See, this is a very different thing. I'm trying to put a new thought into your mind. I'm not trying to shame you to get you to just look inward. I'm trying to put a new thought in your mind. I'm trying to admonish that, that I'm trying to say, I see you have a pattern of thinking, and I'm trying to get you out of that pattern by saying something, giving you a truth, and say, this is the new truth. Now walk on this truth. Understand that in Christ, in this world, you're going to look foolish. Just get that in your head. This world, the way you get up is you try to get on top of everybody. But when you become a Christian, the way you go up is trying to get underneath everybody. So I'm just trying to plant a new thought in your mind so you start traveling down that track. Paul's trying to say the life God uses with greatest effectiveness is cross-shaped, not culture-shaped. Last, not first. Weak, not strong. Dishonored, not celebrity. So he's just trying to keep planting, keep hammering this in their mind. So the first thing Paul does is he says something. He tries to reason with somebody just like you would. I'm trying to just put something new in your mind. I'm trying to help you think something different. So when you go out of here, you're running on a different sort of track in your mind. But the second tactic, and I would say arguably maybe the more important tactic, to get somebody to change, is he sends someone. 
He doesn't just send a letter. He also sends Timothy. I'm sending Timothy because I want you to imitate me. And since I can't be there, Timothy's my disciple. He's been around Paul. And you can just follow after him. In case you don't get it, you can just be near him. Because Paul knows that putting new information in their mind isn't going to be enough to change those cultural behaviors. Information alone isn't strong enough to do that. Moving people from immaturity to maturity doesn't happen just by information transfer. And this is so helpful for me to know and so helpful for you to know as your pastor. This medium is very helpful, but it's limited to just information transfer. Paul knows it's got to be something else. Somebody's got to lock arms with you and say, we're going a different way until you learn how to go that way yourself. And that can very rarely happen from this angle. It has to happen as a a side-by-side. Now, let me read several sentences from this book that I would recommend by James Smith. And he says, you are what you love. I thought he just said it so perfectly, so rather than me saying it, I'll just let him say it. While looking through a Christian magazine, I was struck by a full-color ad for a Bible memory program. At the center of the ad was a man's face, and across his forehead was written, You are what you think. Unfortunately, we imagine human beings as giant bobblehead dolls with humongous heads and tiny, unimportant bodies. And the mind is like the mission control of a human person. It defines, thinking defines who you are. And we've reduced humans to brains on a stick. Love that phrase. See, if you're just brains on a stick, it's just information transfer. I've got to get information in, then you're going to go do something. If I give you the right information, you go, I acknowledge that, then I'm going to do it. Does that, does that always work out? Uh, no. But have you ever experienced a gap between what you know and what you, what you do? Answer, yes. Listen carefully. Ever had the experience of hearing an incredibly inspiring and informative sermon on Sunday? Answer, Yes, I have many times. But then waking up Monday morning with new resolve and conviction to be different and already failing by Tuesday. It seems we can't just think our way into holiness. Laws, rules, commands inform me about what I do, but transformation happens through imitation, practice. Habits. How does someone get their hungers redirected? Through discipleship. And discipleship is more a matter of reformation rather than acquiring information. You see, Paul, James Smith is just getting this from right here. Paul understands the information is helpful. We've got to have the truth. But he knows just that alone is not going to do it. You've got to send somebody right next to your side to, to hook up with. Remember when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burdens are light? What is the yoke? It's, it's what you put across the shoulders of two oxen. So if one starts going one way, the other one says, no, we're going this way. And you have to have new habits, new practices. And information alone isn't going to do it. 
So a question I have here is, in your walk with Jesus, do you keep falling into your old habits? We live in the same culture. Do you, do you import that into your Christianity and say, I'm sure God wants to bless me in this way, and really it's just a cultural way. I've got to have everything I want. Do your old hungers seem to, to just trap you? You can't seem to pull out. And maybe you need some new information. You're living in some, you've got a tape in your brain that's really not true. But you also need a Timothy. You need somebody to say, hey, I need you to walk with me. It might be for a week, it might be for a month, it might be for several years, but you've got to walk beside me because to get out of this old habit, it's not going to take, it's going to take more than just a week. So isn't this a great chapter? Really helps us. It really helps us think about the information we're receiving and making sure it's really what the Bible says all the way through. And then knowing, hey, just the information all by itself, that's not going to be strong enough. I've got to have somebody who walks alongside of me. And so what a great moment to take communion. We're remembering this new information that God has come and he's come near and he's given us his Holy Spirit, but we're doing it together. So you're going to be walking down the aisle with somebody. And it's a way of saying we, we have to do it together. It's not a communion that's a solo event. It's you coming down and, and looking around at the people and saying, these are the people who are trying to help me get out of my ditch, get out of my trench, get out of my old grooves that are costing me my life. And these are the people God has sent to help us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we take the, the bread and the wine, we're remembering that this is a new covenant. A new covenant in your blood. One that lasts forever and in your body that is sufficient for all needs. And that you would covenant with your people to hold fast to them. And we pray that as we come together that we would be reminding ourselves to hold fast to the truth and that we do it together. We're holding each other as we go along on this pilgrimage, one day realizing all the great promises of God. In Jesus' name, amen.